Okay, so since there, I know there's people who have not been here before, so two seconds worth of recap is we've been going through Matthew for a, over a year and a half now. Uh, we will finish chapter 25 today, so we're getting really close. Uh, we're in the last week of Jesus's life here on earth, and um, we're kind of, we're wrapping up. He's talking about some very serious things today, and... Tanner was so kind as to end last week right in the middle of this huge conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Um, I like how he kind of left me that and then left. Um, how, how kind of him. Um, but he's going to pick up his wife from the airport, so I feel like that's a decent reason. Um, but like I said, Jesus was ta- has been talking to his disciples. He's walking on the road back, so back to Bethany. Um, with just his disciples, and I'm not going to try to recap all of last week because any sort of end times conversations, it's going to be really hard to recap. So in just the simplest of terms, we went through last week, we saw that Jesus was talking about the things that were going to happen before he was going to return, before he was going to come back um, to earth. And he he said there was going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be false signs false teachers, there's going to be a lot of things, and it's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse before he comes back. And we kind of squelch the notion that some people say that the world, the earth, is becoming better and better and better, that um, it's going to keep getting better until Jesus returns, and that's definitely not what the Bible would say. There's a bunch of guitar picks up here. Jesus also said that when he would return that only the Father knew, that it wasn't something that we know when it's going to happen, but it's going to be very sudden. That's what he said. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. That's when he's going to return. He used the example, there's going to be two women at the mill, and all of a sudden one is gone. There's going to be two men in the field, and one is gone. It's going to be very sudden. It's going to be very unexpected. And the kind of, the take-home there we kind of saw was the, we got to be ready. As the church We've got to be ready. As individual believers, we've got to be ready. And our lives are going to be reflective of that. And that's the same thing this week. That's the same overarching theme of this conversation, of all of chapter 25. So I hope that as we see this, it's not just a, we've got to be ready. We're going to still look at why is it that we need to be ready. What is it? Because it's not about us. It's not about just us being ready. It's ultimately about glorifying God. So if you'll open to chapter 24, we're going to read the last six verses of 24 first. Um, I'm going to read 45 through 51. Same conversation as last week. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, He will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're going to do a ton of verses today. Um... There's a ton of details that we're not even going to touch because we would be here hours and hours and hours if we did that. Um, But I want us to look at this in kind of an overall, what what are all of these verses? What are all of these different parables teaching? 
just a little bit of background on uh, that's going to help. That's going to help us understand this and the, one of the other parables we're going to read today is servants. So in these times, a very wealthy family would have servants that would take care of the family, that would take care of the different needs of the household. And from what I read this week, there was often one servant who was kind of the head of all the servants that would be basically second in command. If the master of the house, if, if the man of the house was gone, there was a servant that was second in command. That, From what I read, he was often more educated than the man of the household himself. Uh, he would be kind of control the goings-on. He would control the finances and the things like that and would be left in control of the house to, to make sure all the other servants were taken care of, to make sure the women and children were provided for if at any point the master of the house was gone. But it was, he was given a very big responsibility. In doing so, he was responsible for the house. He was responsible for the family. He was responsible for all that he had been left with. And Jesus says that when he, when he returns, either he finds the, master of the, or the, the head servant being responsible for what he's been given, or very irresponsible. He's been doing exactly opposite. And it kind of gives both extremes. What about the, the one that is being faithful? He says, I'm going to set him over everything else. I'm going to give him more responsibility because he's shown that he is faithful with what I've set him over. For the unfaithful servant that is seen to be doing exactly opposite, it says that he will be cut to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. These, these verses really kind of set the stage for the rest of 25, as scary as that seems. It really kind of sets what the responsibility is. What are we responsible for? Because we as the church have been given a ton of responsibility. We, have the church, we as the church have been entrusted with much. And he's calling us to faithfulness here. We've been commissioned as we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to Matthew 28, we've been commissioned to go and make disciples. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We are the chosen instruments that God is using to proclaim the gospel to a lost and broken world. And I think that the ways that we're doing this, the attitudes we're doing this with, are really reflective of the state of our heart. Because if we truly understand grace, if we truly understand what it is, that, what our identity is in Christ then the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we are faithful with the gospel is going to be reflective in that. And Jesus is using these things. He's teaching some really kind of difficult things, but he's still teaching us what it means to truly be a disciple. He's been doing this since the beginning of Matthew. To be a real disciple, this is what it looks like. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about this is what you've been heard. This is what you've heard, but this is what it looks like to truly be a disciple. It was often very different from what they had been taught. And I hope that we see this morning as we go that what we've been given, what we've been entrusted with, our very salvation is not for us. That it's really not about us. Let's continue to read. I'm going to read the next parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. 
but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For time, for just for the sake of time, I'm not going to get super into just the, the traditions of a Jewish wedding and all that, but just a couple things. Um, often it, it was tradition. It was with their wedding to the virgins it's talking about are the bridesmaids. Uh, that's, that was the tradition of the wedding, that the bridesmaids in the wedding would be um, virgins. So if that confuses you at all, um, there's that. But weddings in that time were a a week-long festivity. It, was, it, started, it started, and there was a week-long uh, celebration before the actual wedding ceremony. What I, from what I read, this first feast would have been the, kind of the kickoff at the bridegroom, at the male's house, would have been really the kickoff for the week. And then there would have been a parade to the bride's house and all sorts of festivities in between there. So as we see this, the the, the readers of this time, especially his disciples, would have totally understood the traditions, would have totally understood a wedding. If I, if I, started to, if I mentioned some things with a wedding today, we'd all kind of be on the same page, knowing the general how weddings go. And they would have understood this as well. But I think there are some things that are confusing for us because the doors usually aren't closed to a wedding. Like if, you, if you're late, you're gonna, you might miss some things, but you can still go into the wedding. Right? I mean, they, they don't close and lock the doors if you're late. But why, why this parable? Why this? What is Jesus actually teaching? Because he's teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. What is the purpose of the parable? And in a very cliche type of thing, you see, there's always people that say, I'm just going to wait. I'm good right now. I'll figure out my relationship with God later. I've got plenty of time. I'm going to enjoy life now. I'm going to do all these things and not worry about that. I'll take care of all the rest later once I'm old and life isn't as exciting anymore. I mean, it's, just, it's very, you hear people say that or, or read things like that and somehow acting like they're in control and they know what's going on and they're in control of their life. But it's very clear what Jesus is teaching, and your simplest theme, if you look at this parable, is that there's a time when there's no more waiting. There's a time when Jesus comes, and it's, there's no more, I'll wait. There's no more, I'm going to get ready now. Because at that point, there's no running to get oil, such as the five um, foolish here in this. Why did they not wait for the five to get their oil? Why did they not wait for them to come back to start the wedding feast. Because, nailed it. That was awesome. Sorry. The, the wedding, the feast, is not about the, the bridesmaids. It's not about these virgins. 
The whole wedding is not about the guest. It's not about the wedding party. The whole wedding is about the two people getting married, right? has nothing to do with everybody else. Everybody else that might be attending is there to celebrate the wedding, right? I'm so excited you nailed that. The whole thing is not about them. The whole thing is not about them. And here's, here's another thing. This initial, I mentioned it earlier, this initial party, this initial kickoff to the week-long celebration was at the groom's house, specifically to celebrate the bridegroom, the man. That's what the initial feast was. The rest of the week was all, all the bride. This initial one was for the bridegroom. Marriage, our view of marriage has always been painting a much bigger picture of Christ and his church. The church being the bride of Christ. Christ being the bridegroom that's going to come protect his bride. That's always been the picture, especially in the New Testament. Why are the, bri- why are the, bri- why are the bridesmaids, why are these ten virgins, why are they there waiting in the first place to celebrate the bridegroom, to celebrate what is going on. There's a lot that can be said about what the oil means, what the lamps mean, all these kind of things. We're not going to get into that. A lot of that turns into uh, trying to pull a lot of stuff that I don't think is actually there. But what we see is that in the end game, they were, five were ready, five were not. Five were prepared for the bridegroom, five were not. But listen to the actual response of the bridegroom once they come and knock on the door. After they've gone to get their oil, they're late to the party. The bridegroom says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Sound familiar? Matt, back in Matthew 7, many in the, in, in the end will say, Lord, Lord, look at all these things I did for you. Look at all these good works I did in your name. And Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you. Same thing. These bridesmaids didn't actually know the bridegroom. They're phonies. They didn't actually have a relationship. They were there for the party. They were there for, for they probably looked the part. They would have said, I'm a bridesmaid. I'm, I'm one of these ten virgins here to celebrate. But they didn't know the bridegroom. He says, I did not know you. They didn't have a relationship. And at that point, it's too late. I wish this was not the reality of the world today. I wish this was not the reality of the big seed church today. There's so many people that claim the name Christian, claim the title Christian, whose lives, whose actions, whose words would show that they got no oil in their lamps. They're, they're not prepared. They think they're doing the right things. They're there for the celebration. They want the good stuff but they're not actually prepared. They don't know the bridegroom. They don't truly know Jesus. This is why preaching the gospel is so important. Preaching it to our friends, to our families, to the lost all over. This is why it's so important that we preach the gospel to one another. 
Not, not, not trying to imply that one another that, so, well, I don't think you're really saved, so I'm going to continue to preach the gospel to you. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying we continue to point one another to the gospel because the gospel is all that we got. I truly believe there's a lot of people that were saved long after they thought they were originally saved. Let me explain, because I think I'm absolutely one of these. Prayed a prayer when I was six years old. Claimed to be a Christian. I don't know if I would. I don't know. It wasn't until much later in my life that I truly understood grace. I truly understood what it really means to follow Jesus. When I understood what it really means to be forgiven. What it really means to have been given grace upon grace upon grace. And all in the middle there, I'm really glad people continue to preach the gospel to me. Even though I would have said, I'm a Christian. I know the words. I know what to say. I'm really thankful people continue to preach the gospel to me. Because it shows you the importance, the importance of being centered on the gospel, the importance of being ready. Of being ready. Let's continue. Starting in verse 14. Again, when Jesus comes... For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who'd received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he that had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you deliver to me five talents. Here, I have made you five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no, no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more, who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here again, we have two servants being entrusted with a portion of the master's estate. A talent would have been a lot of money. 
one talent would have been a lot of money. There's various people throughout different numbers of what that actually means. But we're talking like today's society, like millions of dollars, lots of money. And when they're gone, we see that two are faithful and one is not. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to sit in the parable very long. So I'm not, we're not going to talk in terms of the master and the servants. We're going to jump right out and say, what does this mean for the church? What is, what is Jesus talking about? Verse 15 reads, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. A lot of people are like, wait, what does that mean? God gives to each one of us in very, very different ways. We've all been entrusted, like we said, the church has been entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with sharing the gospel. But often... We're, off, we're, we're, gift, we're, we're gifted, we're, we're given in different ways, and we're all called to be faithful all the same. I can say without the shadow of a doubt, and my wife will say I second this, I have not been gifted to stand up here with a guitar and sing. That, at this point in my life, I am absolutely confident of that. You can stop shaking your head, please. Uh, but I can say that confidently. If you stood in front of me while we sing, I can say that confidently. But as we read, these three were all entrusted differently according to their ability. We've all been gifted differently. Like, I'm not called to be faithful in what you have been entrusted with, the, the, the gifts and abilities that God has given you. You're not called to be faithful in the ways that God has gifted me to do various ministry. He's gifted us all differently. But it's not, it has nothing to do with what we've been, what we've been tasked with. Look, the, the two that, the one was given two and he turned it into four. One was given five, he turned it into ten. Both of those got the same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's up there now. We've all been entrusted differently. One not, there's not one more important than the other. Some of us have been gifted and called to stand up here and preach. Some of us have been gifted and called to work with kids. Some of us have been gifted and called to play music. Some of us have been gifted and called to invest our lives into into our jobs, or we're sharing the gospel through that. Some of us has been called to be, to be missionaries, to go overseas. Some have been called to do a ton of different things. But we're called to be faithful in what that is. Look at the, look at the servant who is not faithful with the one talent he was given. Listen to what he says to the master. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. This guy's, this, this servant's relationship with the master is much different than the other two. His relationship shows him that he has doubting the master's goodness, the master's character. He's afraid of the master. It all stems from his relationship with the master. Do you, do you see how this would cause a problem? Because 
if you don't trust in the master, if you don't trust in his goodness, then of course you're going to be scared and he went and buried what he'd been given and, and didn't do anything. As real followers of Jesus, as disciples saved by grace, we're all called to be faithful. We're all called to be ministers of the gospel, to be ministers of reconciliation. Why are we all equipped for that? Because if you are saved, then we have the Spirit of God living in us. I'm going to read Romans 8. This is verse 11. This is Paul talking. He says, But if the Spirit... It should be on the screen. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life, will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Like, we are equipped to be ministers of the gospel because we have the Spirit of God living in us. It's the Spirit of God that continually works in our lives to make us more and more and more like Jesus. That's what we would call sanctification. The big word. Through His Word, through time in prayer, through time in the church, through time sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. This is why we are equipped to be ministers of the gospel. It, the details look differently. Some might do music, some might do this, some might play sports. Some, he's equipped each one of us differently, and we're called to be faithful in that. Because it's all ultimately about the glory of God. Our own salvation is about the glory of God, and it all comes back to the relationship with the Master. Those that were faithful seemed to approach the master confidently because they knew the relationship was there. But I just want to like all of these, the things that the ways that we've been gifted, the ways that we've been entrusted with the gospel, the ways that we've been saved, all of these things are so not about us. For the sake of time, right, if you're taking notes, write down Romans 1, 1 through 6. Romans 1 through, 1, 1 through 6, very clearly as Paul intros his letter, he says, you have been given grace and apostleship for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. You've been given grace, you've been saved, you've been given apostleship, you're followers of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. You've been saved for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. You've been saved for the glory of God. Not for us. We've been saved. Like, being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, is not about us. It's all about Him. If at any point we're somehow caught into thinking that it's about us, that we're, we're serving because it's about us, we need to reset. We need, we, need to, we, need to, we need to really search because that's not at all what this is about. Why are we faithful with the talents that he's given us, with the way he's gifted us? Because we give him glory. Why do we share the gospel? Because it gives him glory. Why do we go and invest in the lives of, of lost people? Why do we go and, and preach the gospel to people who are really difficult to deal with? Because it gives glory to God. 
Like, when we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Him, that causes faithfulness. It's not that we all said we can muster up that faithfulness, but if our eyes are on Him, He will be faithful. I would say that if our response to the gospel is not faithfulness, is not a desire to share the gospel, if our, if our response to this is not to truly love and serve people, I don't know that we've got it. I don't know that our hearts have truly been changed. I don't know that we truly understand who Jesus is. Let's continue. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will, also, then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. After reading this, I don't understand a belief that says somehow all will be saved. I don't think this leaves it open to that at all. It very clearly says that when Jesus returns in glory as the, as the king to sit on a throne, that he's going to separate the saved from the unsaved. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus, and a lot of the Old Testament, actually, we're like the, the, those that are saved, the, the church, is, are referred to as sheep, the sheep of his flock. John says this a lot in, in chapter 10, that, that he is the good shepherd, that he knows his flock, the flock know him, and that they hear his voice. And again, it says that he's going to come and separate. And again, this part... At this time, we're talking where it's too late. There's no trying to become a sheep. A goat's not going to pretend to be a sheep at this point. And looking back at the first parable we read, there's many people who realize they don't know the shepherd. They don't know the king. They don't know the bridegroom. Whichever parable you want to pull that from, 
all of this is wrapped up into one big idea. Jesus isn't using it as a scare tactic. He's not using it as some way to scare people into following him. But there's definitely a call to action. There's definitely something that says, you're not ready. Be ready. Be prepared for my coming. We're we're supposed to be prepared like the five wise. We're supposed to be prepared like the two wise servants. But here's the thing. If you don't truly understand grace, if you don't truly understand who Jesus is and the way that he died for broken sinners to reconcile us to God, if you don't truly understand that, then any sort of obedience, any sort of trying to do good works is all going to be out of fear of the wrath of God. If you don't understand that he's a good, good father that provides and protects his sheep, your obedience is going to be out of fear of wrath. But here's the thing. If you are saved by grace, if you say, no, Jesus, he's done absolutely everything, every single ounce of wrath that you deserved is what Jesus took on the cross. There is no wrath for you to be afraid of because Jesus took every ounce of that. That's grace. That's the gospel that Jesus took what we deserved. But understanding the wrath of God, understanding that this is true, that that Jesus is going to come back and separate. And what's it say there at the end? Those that are not of his flock, those that are not saved. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Like understanding grace, understanding the wrath of God should lead us to plead and beg with God to save people. That's why it was so cool on our prayer night the other night, or a couple weeks ago, there were so many cards up there that were asking God to save people, asking God to save people in our lives, asking God to save people we know. Because we know, he's saying, like, be ready. And there's a lot of people that are not ready. Outside this room, inside this room. Us, the church is who God chooses to use to be ministers of reconciliation. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5, we've been charged with taking the gospel. That is what we're called to be faithful to do. Like I said, we're all, we're all called to be, be faithful with different Things that we've all been called to be faithful, to go and to make disciples, to go and share the gospel, to, to live the gospel. That is what we've all been called to do as the church and individually in the church. But what kind of things do saved people do? What kind of things do we do? Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then he says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All of these things are things that Jesus did when he was here. This is the compassion that Jesus had on the people around him as he was telling them, I am ultimately what you need, but he continually met needs of people around him. 
And I think that our salvation is evidenced by the way that we love people, the way that we serve people, the way that we are faithful in what we've been given. I'll say that again. Our salvation is evidenced by the way that we love people, the way that we serve people, the way that we are faithful with, with what we've been given. Don't hear that backwards. Don't hear that, that our faithfulness, our serving, our being faithful is what saves us. Because that's not the gospel. That is, that is works. That is trusting in our goodness that is going to fail every single time. But if we are truly saved, if we truly understand the gospel, then we're going to overflow with that. And people are going to know that. People are going to see that. Our lives are going to reflect that. Our words are going to reflect that. We're going to be so excited because we just want to talk about Jesus and we're looking for every opportunity to do so. An understanding of salvation that doesn't lead to wanting to tell others, to wanting to love and serve others, that kind of understanding I don't think is a real understanding. Like I don't think you can be saved and not reflect that. It says we'll be known by our fruit. Sounds, someone who's not about that, sounds like someone who is, takes what they've been given and doesn't do anything with it, hides it in a field, buries it in a field. As I was preparing this week, the first thing I kind of jotted down was that if you, I actually wrote down, I'm not saying that if you don't have a desire to share the gospel or love others that you're not saved thought a lot about that this week. I thought, really prayed about that. It's like, I don't agree with what I originally wrote. Because I think that if you truly understand salvation, if you've truly been saved, then you're going to have a desire to share the gospel and love others and serve others. If you don't have a desire to share the gospel, if you don't have a desire to love people, I would say that's a, that's a heart that's been unchanged. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. I'm not saying we've got it all down, that we don't do this with a lot of error and mistakes. But loving loving people gets messy. We don't always do it very well. But I think that if we've truly been saved, it's going to be impossible to not love people. It's going to be impossible to not desire to share the gospel. But kind of on the flip side, if you find yourself desiring to do good works so that Jesus is going to save you, like, you're also missing it. Like, that's not why. We don't, we don't just conjure up this love for people. We don't conjure up this, I'm going to do all these good works so then I'm going to be doing the right thing. That's not it. I think this whole conversation, I said this, this big theme is why we started the conversation last Sunday night. Keyword being started. Just, just scratch the surface of it. Of what, is, what have we been called to do? Because we've been tasked with gospel ministry. We've been tasked with meeting needs of people and sharing the gospel in our lives. And it's not trying to find a time that fits in our schedules on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings or Monday nights or whatever night you want to throw in. That's not the conversation we're trying to have. We're trying to say, how is your entire life going to be reflective of the gospel? How is your entire life going to show? Not when you're going to fit gospel ministry in, but how you're going to fit the rest of your life in with gospel ministry. 
Because that's what we're about. That's what the church has been tasked with. He's saying that he's coming back as conquering king. He's coming back as the king to sit on his throne. And we as the church, those that, that are genuinely ready for him, have, are, should, we should long for this. We should desire this. We should pray for this, for him to come back, because that is everything. But until that day comes, we are to be faithful with what we've been entrusted Is that us? Are we being faithful with what we've been given? Faithful with sharing the gospel? Faithful in being entrusted with the gospel? But also faithful in how he's gifted each one of us, how he's worked in each one of us? Because we as the church have been called and sent, are called and sent into a broken world that is showing every day more and more and more how much the world is broken, how much people all over need Jesus. And we're called to go to them, to be ready ourselves, but to go to them. And that's what I would just challenge you to pray about. Pray that, that we would have a passion for the lost, a passion to love as Jesus loved, but that we would be faithful until the day Jesus comes back. And that is a work that he does in our lives. Let's pray.